Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target, are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill. Welcome back to the Grey Malkin Lane podcast, where queer friends and allies gather to review and discuss the original X-Men comics in continuity order. We are uh, on our final three issue reviews of The Hidden Years, and oh my god, I can't wait to be done with this series. (laughs) It's been delightful to review, but I feel like I've been doing it for a year, and it has not been that long. Uh, I am thrilled to welcome uh, some uh, co-hosts from the uh, Tomb of Ideas podcast, a podcast I was invited to be on. I am thrilled to return the favor. Uh, I'm also so honored to have the incredible and hilarious writer Daniel Kibblesmith with us today. What a what a huge uh, deal that is to have Daniel on the show. Uh, so let me have you each introduce yourselves. Let us know where we might know you from. What are your gender pronouns? And our question for intro today, uh, in which uh, the issue is uh, Craven the Hunter is hunting the beast who gives into his animal side. So spoilers for later, but it's all right. Uh, what does your animal side look like? Uh, let's begin with Daniel. Hi. Hi, thank you for having me. Uh, my name thank is Daniel Kibblesmith. Oh, yeah, sure. <laughs> um, yeah, my name is Daniel Kibblesmith. Uh, thank you so much for the lovely introduction. Uh, my pronouns are he and him. And I, you know, uh, people might know me from Marvel Comics if they're listening to this podcast. Uh, I've written uh, mini series or canceled series uh, like Loki <laughs> uh, or uh, Black Panther versus Deadpool. And uh, most recently, I've been doing uh, some backup stuff for the Spider-Man titles. Uh, I got to do a story in Spider-Man Legacy numbering 900, uh, I think uh, current numbering 6, where Peter Parker uh, returns a bunch of overdue library books, uh, which was extremely fun for me because I used to work in a library. And yeah, I've written for television, uh, most recently on Netflix's Inside Job. Also canceled. So, you know, if you're a fan of canceled <laughs> things, uh, you've you've seen my work everywhere. But no, it's uh, obviously love the X-Men and uh, and great to be here. Great to talk about them. Uh, Daniel, what does your animal side look like? I was thinking about this and I think it really is m- less like the beast and more like a caterpillar. Like uh, definitely like just wrapped up looking at my phone for six hours, dark room. Uh, I can't do that as much now because we have a toddler. But if, if I get if I get five minutes to myself, I go full caterpillar liquefying on the couch. And then I'm picturing because I've had toddlers. I'm picturing like a sticky hand slapping you across the face, and you come to right like. <laughs> oh yeah, I don't know if this is a video podcast, but there's a lot of chocolate ice cream on my shirt right now. <laughs> don't you love it when you wake up and they're just on your head, mm-hmm. like sticking <laughs> there. I get yep, asked just all planting the, a flag. I get asked all the time, like, do you miss your kids' younger days? And I'm like, I really don't. Like, I loved every day with them, but I am fine with them being 12 and 14 now. It's a it's a powerful change. <laughs> it's great. Like- but everybody says they're all good faces, and I, I truly agree with that so far. <laughs> uh let's go over to Trey next. Hi, Trey. 
Hi, uh, I'm Trey Lawson. I co-host Tomb of Ideas, a Marvel horror podcast, and uh, I've written online a few different places, most recently at Cinepunks, which also hosts our show. And uh, other than that, I teach full-time uh, college English and film studies. And what and, does your animal side look like? Yeah, I, I was thinking about this. And uh, when it comes to like animal instinct, fight or flight type stuff, I'm very conflict averse. I am fully on the flight side of things. Um, and, and so, uh, yeah, I, I sympathize a little bit with, with, with Daniel uh, sort of preferring the uh, sort of keep to yourself, read, check your phone, uh, sort of that sort of thing. I'm, I'm not someone who necessarily is uh, going to lean into any kind of aggressive instincts or anything. I don't know. I'm, I'm, uh, I don't know if boring is the word, but, but certainly, uh, not someone who looks for those kinds of, certainly not like beast in the stories we're going to talk about. <laughs> I was, I was picturing there's gonna be stories like bar fights. Everybody just wants naps here. <laughs> yeah, my impulse control only goes as far as overspending at conventions. <laughs> <laughs> and then we'll go over to James. Hi, James. Hi, I'm James Hickson. I'm the other co-host on Tomb of Ideas, a Marvel horror podcast. Um, when I'm not talking about decades-old comics, I am a high school history teacher. Um, so, uh, as far as my animals, animal side goes, Nemo, you, you kind of said, like, lizard brain. Um, I have untreated ADHD, so it's pretty much all lizard brain all the time. Um, uh, I can't really... If I had to equate it to an animal, I don't know. My wife says I'd be a bear, but I think there's a different connotation there. So <laughs> <laughs> this is a queer themed podcast. You and Beast could both be bears. It'd be fine. <laughs> Excellent. <laughs> uh, lastly, I'm Chad Anderson. I use he him pronouns. You guys know me as the host of this show. I'm also a former Marvel Comics handbook writer, a documentarian and an author. I am a therapist in my day job, and I do a lot of work with the LGBTQ community, as well as the polyamorous and kink communities. Weirdly, those are some of my niches as a therapist. And we have a thing in my office where we refer to our animal sides as like the part of us that's just like kind of innately sexual, which means different things for men and women, obviously. But there's like a part of us that just wants to give in. Right. And we'll we'll talk about like what are the trigger foods that like if it's there, you're just going to ravenously eat the whole thing and like equate that energy into sexual energy space. I think we all have somewhat of an animal side. Although I certainly do not want to beat up Craven the Hunter, uh, although he is rather punchable. Uh, he has nipple lasers, so I'd have to fight back at a certain <laughs> point. Uh, I do have an animal side, though. I've got a mama bear side to me, though. I uh, If my kids are threatened, if there's something, you know, we're at the pride parade and somebody says the the F word slurred toward us. Like, there's a part of me that just <clears throat> like I, I it doesn't take a lot to unlock that side of me when I feel threatened. But I would never be the one to instigate any sort of animal-like behavior. Uh, we're going to talk about a lot of crazy comic book stuff from the hidden years in the latter half of this episode. And I want to say thank you to all three of you. I, I know I expressed this in the email. It's a big ask to come on this show and do issue reviews anyway, but to jump into a series like this that has so many plot lines being juggled, I hope that this was a pleasant experience to, to jump into this craziness. But we'll get into that in the second half. 
Uh, Daniel, I want to focus on your work a little bit first. And trans uh, transitioning with the animal question, we will go straight into your work with edibles. <laughs> yes, now, I sort of know what this is going to be. Um, <laughs> there's a short list, I guess. Daniel has done a lot of really incredible writing. I am a huge fan of your work on The Colbert Show. I do want to focus a little bit more on your uh, Marvel work specifically today. But I'm so impressed by your charisma and your confidence and your humor in almost everything that you write. My single favorite series that you've done for Marvel is, I think was your first, was your Lockjaw work, which is so... That was my first, correct. Which is yeah. so silly and wonderful. Uh, D-Man, or Demolition Man, is an old Captain America sidekick character who was a wrestler. Uh, I'm getting ready to do an episode on this guy on my show, so I've been rereading. Uh, this is another character I wrote the literal encyclopedia on for Marvel. Uh, he he was a wrestler. He had a heart attack. He was a hero. Then he got drowned by his like infinity gauntlet version of himself and got brain damage. He was homeless for a while. Then he got brainwashed into being the scourge and then he died. And there's a story in Secret Wars 2, T-O-O, like Secret Wars also, where a guy casts a spell trying to summon a demon, but he accidentally summons D-Man. <laughs> So D-Man is back to life, hooray! And then suddenly he's in this series called Lockjaw, where he's just being his full queer, wonderful self. Uh, I would love to hear your memories of how this series came to be. Uh, and actually, if we want to take a step back from there, Daniel, I would love to hear a little bit about your love of comics as a kid or some of your aspirations as you began in this field. Sure, absolutely. Well, I'm definitely an X-Men kid. Um, I'm uh, 40. I'll be 40 this year. Uh, so you can kind of pinpoint me with the X-Men animated show from the from the 90s. But before that, slightly before that, my dad was a Marvel kid growing up and he had a lot of Silver Age books around the house and I never really took to them. It, it always sort of felt like his thing. And I was more interested in in video games and, you know, other other toys and I was also just like a very like soft, you know, child. I was I was more like a Muppet Babies kid than a Ninja Turtles kid, if that makes sense. <laughs> so I I didn't like you know all the the, the punching and 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 fighting yet. Um, and then because I loved video games so much, uh, he took me to a video arcade that uh, people listening from the Chicagoland area might have memories of. It was called Fun Zone in Melrose Park next to Triton Community College. I think it's the college bookstore now, which is fair. I think if you're a video arcade next to a college and it's the 2020s and you want to become the college bookstore, that makes a lot of sense. But, uh, you know, soon we will probably won't have paper books for college yet either. And <laughs> then, then I don't know, it'll turn into liquor or something. But <laughs> we went into the video arcade and they had uh, the six player wraparound X-Men arcade game. And Right. And that was my, my first that was my first exposure to superhero characters who were not like these kind of clean cut, iconic DC characters or, you know, to a lesser extent, Spider-Man, who I mostly knew as just sort of like a as a design more than more than a character. Um, I had seen superheroes around, but when you were a little kid in the 80s watching maybe like the Ruby Spears Superman cartoon, I think Superman feels more like Mickey Mouse or something than a gateway to the world of, of comic books, especially like 80s Marvel comic books. So the, the X-Men arcade game was the first time that I saw characters that really resonated with me. 
and were quirky and weird and, you know, had edges to them. And Nightcrawler in particular was the one that I latched on to. I needed to know everything about Nightcrawler. So my dad said, oh, if you like Nightcrawler, there's this relatively new series. I have the first one. And it's so rare that you have a jumping on point in like the the 80s before the before the 90s boom. And it was the first issue of Excalibur. So mm-hmm. we went home and I read the first issue of Excalibur and then I read everything that he owned. And from then I was just, I was a comic book reader and primarily at that time, a Marvel comic book reader. But that was, that was my gateway was through the X-Men video game. And then when the X-Men animated series started, I obviously loved it, but there was a bit of a hump for me where I was like, where is Nightcrawler? Where are all of my friends? Where is Dazzler with the headband throwing the big uh, Akira blobs of pink energy <laughs> at, at six foot tall Sentinels? So now as, as an adult, I'm sure everyone uh, listening to this knows that that game was in fact tied to a different animated pilot. But I, it took me a minute. It took me a minute to love the X-Men the X-Men. Uh, animated series specifically it took me 22 minutes and then by the end of the first episode i was i was a lifer does a mall babe eat chili fries daniel kibblesmith absolutely absolutely a mall baby eats chili fries <laughs> and that machine costs a quarter now i know you have a big career as a writer in a lot of spaces but how did you get your start at marvel so marvel happened when i had been doing comic books for a little while which makes sense to me i think that when people are starting to uh, merge at other companies and stack up a body of work it's very logical to kind of test them out at one of the big two at the time i was living in chicago and i was very close with my friend uh, alejandro arbona a valiant editor who gave me my very first comic book writing assignment they were humor pages in number 25 issues for some valiant properties so i did some fake ads for bloodshot 25 and some gs uh gi joe style psas for unity number 25 which i'm really proud of i would love for people to track those down i know that you know the average comic book reader hasn't necessarily read unity 25 but i think they're very funny (laughs) i think they turned out very well so I was very active on uh, Twitter, which was usable at that time. And I met a lot of comic book editors through social media, and we had a lot of mutual friends. And when I moved from Chicago to New York, where more of them were living, there was the opportunity to sort of like get informally introduced at you know parties and and through other other kind of media people. And so I started to meet uh, editors. And I think that I had done, a few a few Valiant one-offs before they offered me the miniseries Valiant High, which started as a comicsology exclusive. It was a digital first and then went to print. And then Quantum and Woody, which I really had had my eye on for a while because I, I loved those characters. And I felt like coming from the world of comedy writing, I was maybe a good, a good fit for that as somebody who wanted to break into comics. I had kind of my short list of characters that I was like, they might give me harley quinn someday or they might give me deadpool someday but i i feel like i could get quantum and woody so i had I'd been doing work with valiant um and then i had done an inventory script a test script for for dc uh, a harley quinn script that hasn't been drawn uh but i would i would love to revisit that idea if they need if they need a filler issue 
DC, if you're listening. Yep. Uh, and uh, I, you know, at that point, I was just kind of around. So I got, I think it was maybe a, a DM or an email from uh, my my still uh, editor uh, from time to time, Will Moss at Marvel, saying uh, we would love to to try you out on on a mini series. Do you have any interest in doing Lockjaw? I feel like I was maybe one of ten people on the planet who very much was interested in doing Lockjaw. A, a non-verbal uh, hippopotamus-sized teleporting inhuman dog with a pitchfork in his head, um, <laughs> and I and I, I credit that you know the the inhumans oh, we always talk about them like like sea listers or whatever, but I credit that to my weird comics upbringing because I was reading Silver Age books when I was a kid. Like during the '90s boom, I was reading Silver Age books, and I had a subscription to Amazing Spider-Man, which was getting really crazy. And Excalibur, which was getting really crazy. <laughs> and I kind of preferred like the Stan and Jack stuff. And if you're reading it all at once, you just assume that the Inhumans are a huge deal because that's the way that they're presented to you. So when I was a kid, I thought that the Inhumans were, you know, as important as the Avengers. Uh, so I liked them. I knew a lot about them. I was very excited <laughs> to write uh, as as many of the characters as I could I could fit in that story. You pairing Lockjaw, which you could have done so many things with a Lockjaw title, but you pairing him with D-Man was such a weird choice that I love it. I love that you took a queer character with, who hadn't really been explored as queer at all and put him into the like limelight uh, and gave him a ton of just... Uh, really silly, wonderful moments in this series. There's a there's a flashback to when he's breaking up with his boyfriend. And he's like, I thought everything was perfect. All I wanted was to be loved unconditionally and not have to work on any of my flaws. And then the moment where he's in the <laughs> savage land and Kazar is or Kazar standing over him and he's like, oh my God, I'm in heaven. Like there's so many great moments in this series. How did you land on D-Man? Well, I mean, I I'm so glad you I'm so glad you isolated those those particular ones because I do think he is like a I don't know that he's written as a funny guy, but he is a guy who has had experiences where I felt like he would be a funny guy. Like, I feel like as a character, he like in his world, I think that he's probably funny. Uh, he's a performer. You know, he works in wrestling, uh, obviously. He's had all these crazy ups and downs. And I mean, not like no pun intended, but he is also the ultimate underdog in the Marvel Universe. And I needed a character that this was my first Marvel book. So, so crucially, and this was the strategic component of it. I needed a character that I would definitely be allowed to use. Like I, I couldn't necessarily pair Lockjaw with like Miss Marvel or something, even though, you know, they have that relationship because Miss Marvel would be in a million other continuity anchored situations. I need somebody who was just fully available uh, and D-Man is, that's the joke, right? Like he's a, he's a D-lister, he's a Z-lister. And he is also, you know, once I thought of him, he is also a character in the Marvel universe who needs a dog. Like when I sit down to do one of these stories and in Lockjaw, I was kind of teaching myself how to write one of these stories. And this is something that we weirdly talked a lot about at the Colbert show is that for these things to resonate with people, they need to be analogous to things that the people have experienced themselves. And sometimes, you know, in the X-Men, that's love or revenge or some, you know, I, I hate my father, you know, these really big relatable things. 
but it, it can be as simple as this is a story about a guy getting a dog after a breakup. And that's a story that everybody understands. It's just that our version of that has like interdimensional teleporting and a fight with Annihilus and D-Man turning into a dragon. And like it's there's like some very Animal Crossing energy to all of this. It's very it's a very cute series. If you guys have not read Lockjaw by Daniel Kibblesmith, please go read it. It's a wonderful. And I we're going to talk about the theme of continuing to use queer characters in your writing. But I'm so impressed by uh, the room and the space that you make for that in your storytelling. Uh, your next series of Marvel was Black Panther versus Deadpool, which is a wild, wild combination. <laughs> there's a there's a, a beat of the like slapstick, ridiculous body horror humor of Deadpool, uh, balanced by the, just this like very hyper focused, like uh, take no shit version of Black Panther, and it's weirdly a like perfect comedy duo it's a really fun series uh tell us a little bit about your work on that series i would have done that for a hundred issues i mean I, I i worked really hard on it i don't like the expression like oh it wrote itself but i think that one of the re real benefits and and joys of writing a marvel comic and one of the ways you can tell that if that you're maybe writing a successful marvel comic like a comic that's going to work with the reader is that I know going in what any two characters would do if you locked them in a room together. Like I know what I know what Thor and Spider-Man would do if you locked them in a room together because their personalities are so full and so complete and we've spent so much time with them. So with Black Panther and Deadpool, it's like a freebie, you know, they're like bugs in a jar and then you shake the jar <laughs> Uh, it's it, it really I did try to I did try to write it as as a comedy duo, obviously, because Deadpool is the ultimate foil to Black Panther, the ultimate straight man. It's it's really funny and it's really unexpected. It's a it's a how did this book happen? <laughs> this it's kind of similar to it's kind of similar to my my request to use D-Man. But this one came from the editor from Will again. He was looking for another project for me, and he needed something that could get greenlit, no questions asked, especially with a writer who was still fairly new to writing for Marvel. He wanted to create a project that he could bring to his bosses, and they would just say yes. And this was in 2018, when there was a Black Panther movie and a Deadpool movie, if I'm not mistaken. <laughs> and the Deadpool versus series uh, had been a great testing ground for people who didn't write a ton of marvel comics uh the uh the uh deadpool versus uh gambit one yeah, or deadpool yeah. v gambit vs versus was i think my my favorite uh, of those um also by uh you know comedy writers like people who were not necessarily full-time marvel writers but but had something to to bring to those characters so i think it was i think it was just a sandbox that was extremely uncontroversial in terms of like editorial decisions and you know the sales potential of of that idea it was basically outside of continuity not literally outside of continuity but it wasn't a story that would you know affect any plans that were in motion and it most importantly i think that they saw that it was a good fit for me and i had actually been trying to write you know, Marvel Comics, you know, more or less my entire life and was able to use Deadpool dialogue that I had written in a notebook maybe 10 years earlier 
uh, things when I when it was nowhere near a reality, I was still writing Deadpool samples, and I was able to get some of that content into this book. Um, speaking of hitting the big time, like the next year, you've got that Loki series, two two thousand nineteen, and with that whole series is all kind of about you know somebody who has been the archetypical villain for well thousands of years human history all of a sudden being an a-list hero yeah i mean look you want to write you want to write uh loki there's so many great so many great loki series including the loki series that's ongoing right now um we just uh, we just interviewed the writer of that series it's wonderful yeah it really really strong and the fact that he brought back we, we talked about it a little bit online but the fact that he brought back Durf just oh <laughs> oh my my heart my heart my 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 proudest contribution to six six one six is Durf. <laughs> but um yeah loki is another one of those characters where everybody knows him really well and you know i felt like i knew him really well i was a special ed kid growing up i write about that in the back matter of the loki paperback yep <laughs> i um you know, I have siblings. Like I was, I was writing for television at that time. But my job writing for television was really hard, and I didn't always appreciate that job, even though it was sort of what I thought I wanted. And that's that's what I always come back to with with these characters. It's important to know what they want. You know, their 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 goals and their psychology, and the stakes of getting it or not getting it. But I think to really to really land in the audience's brain, or you know, more accurately, to to turn the key that is already in the audience's brain, I think that they do have to be about these feelings that live inside of us already. And my Loki series was very much about what happens to the guy who gets his dream job and then realizes he doesn't actually want it. I'm bored. And, <laughs> yeah, exactly. And what does that do? What does that do to your what does that do to your self-esteem? Like what kind of person does that? And if you're Loki, maybe you're a person who already sort of hates yourself. And now you've spent your, you know, entire life, which is thousands of years, trying to get this one thing and you didn't even maybe really want it. You you might be not the bad guy, but you might be a bad guy. <laughs> I use this phrase in therapy a lot, but like wherever you go, there you are, right? It's the idea of uh, if you're discontent in one place, you're likely to be discontent, even when you have the perfect relationship and the job that you want. You're going to be discontent still. Buddy, that's Marvel Comics right there. <laughs> and sometimes you just need to build a big magical snowman. <laughs> oh, yeah. No, him I'm winning <laughs> Uh yeah, uh, Frosty. I'm waiting for Frosty to come back. <laughs> oh, it's right. Fro it's Frosty with an, a long O. I didn't. I, I think so. There's there's umlaut dots uh, <laughs> over it. Oh, umlauts. It's been a minute. I can't remember. If it's Frosty or Forsty. I think it's Frosty. It's Frosty. F R O S T I. But it's definitely a long. It's definitely a long O. I was trying to do that Nordic O. Well, one of the nice things you do in that series is you bring in this character of Megan, um, to be kind of this a human approach character, which is really nice. Because, you know, for some readers, this world of gods and pantheons can be a hard thing to approach. And you do and you do a really good job of making us care a lot about her and her marriage. I, I was um a little stressed in some certain points there. <laughs> that's a no, I mean that's a huge that's a huge compliment because that is what that is what I am trying to do. I mean, I think that's we you know, we've seen end of the world stakes so many times. That when I think of things that are truly evil, 
they are very intimate. They're very personal. They are very, um, you know, you have to have like a, like a real cruel brain uh, to get specific, I think. Uh, so, you know, at the time I was, I think, newly married uh, or or we were about to be married when I when I wrote that. And, you know, the real end of my world, you know, would be for that for that person to to be taken away, to have that one in a million shot in life of like really finding the person that you're supposed to be with your entire life. And for that to go away overnight, that to me was a lot scarier than the abstract idea of, you know, blowing up the Empire State Building or something. And just a cute little aside you have there, that the, the, the House of Ideas actually bringing it into continuity. You know, we named our podcast after the House of Ideas, the Tomb of Ideas, House of Ideas. And that was just, then and now are fantastic. And I just love that conceit. I just had to say that. I, I really, I really appreciate it. I, again, the, it was hard to, you know, it was hard to move paper on that one. It, the series did get canceled for, for low sales. It has had a very, very supportive paperback life. And I'm very grateful for that. I had so much more planned for those characters. <laughs> <laughs> it, it hurts, man. Um, but yeah, the House of Ideas thing, I wanted to do, I wanted to do sort of Marvel's version of Grant Morrison's Hypertime. I'm a massive Morrison fan, um, as you know, so many of us are. Yeah, yeah. And I felt like the Marvel version would look maybe more like a Neil Gaiman kind of Sandman philosophy that things kind of run on the principle of, of story. And I think that that's a concept that comes up in, in 1602. Um, another huge, huge influence on me. Uh, I wanted to approach Loki as sort of a Sandman esque book um, and that's also where that's where like the character of Megan kind of comes from is the idea that when you're doing a story about these gods, you're not really that worried that they're going to die or, you know, that something permanent will happen to them. It really does have to be about the way they impact the lives of others and the kind of collateral damage of them being capable of making these big moves. Uh, anyone who uh, writes Nightmare Getting Their Ass Kicked <laughs> should be commended. He's a very ass-kickable character. I can now, I can tell you a secret, which is that the I originally pitched the Sleepwalker villain Cobweb. Ooh. And they said, they said too small. And then I said, okay, Mephisto. And then they said too big. <laughs> and we figured out that Nightmare was the exact halfway point between Mephisto and Cobweb. <laughs> There's, um, there's, but it turned out great. He was like his powers and like his thematic, you know, role. It, it was perfect for the story. There's kind of a revival in the last five years or so of uh, the obscure character. We're seeing these like little obscure villains show up all over the place. Uh, Jed McKay's Moon Knight is a great example. Every issue is like some obscure. You're like, wait, who's this guy from ni 1976? Uh, you know, Steve Orlando and Scarlet Witch doing that. It's really fun. And then the X-Men universe, all these characters popping up from all over because everyone can be resurrected now. So we could use everybody. Now, I know the world changed a lot publication-wise, and we've changed a lot as people since COVID hit. But right at the start of COVID, there was a lot of books announced that later got canceled. One of the ones you were assigned to, and if this is a, I don't know how this topic will come up, but I want to just broach it quickly, it was the New Warriors book that was planned. And yes. New Warriors, you had several uh, queer-themed or LGBTQ characters 
that were announced. And there was a lot of weird controversy around it. And I know a lot of books that were planned ended up getting canceled anyway. Uh, but do you want to talk about New Warriors at all? Yeah, I haven't really talked about it publicly. The short answer is that the story is not as interesting as the question about where it went. Um, the short version is just it didn't come out. It got delayed indefinitely for COVID publishing reasons. And then I had an opportunity to revisit it. But at that point, it really felt like no one wanted it. It felt like the the story that I had written would be overshadowed by the conversation online about it, regardless of how you felt about it. But I, I don't know. I mean, once once it's been made fun of on the Joe Rogan show, it stops being fun to write. So uh, I I had the opportunity yeah. to I had the opportunity to to shelf it and and move on and I also had the opportunity not to you know they Marvel was was extremely uh, kind and smart and said you know there's I think that that there's absolutely a way to do that uh, and you know potentially with these characters but it just he, the whole project just felt burnt um, sure. Yeah, I think what I can say about it is that obviously there was no malice intended. <laughs> they were not intended to be punchline characters. Um, they were very minor characters in an extremely large cast. But I also fully understand that people responded poorly to them. And that's ultimately all that matters because you're writing for an audience. So if something doesn't work, the smartest thing I think that a writer can do is recognize that that thing doesn't work and, you know, maybe stop, uh, stop pushing and, you know, reevaluate your approach. I mean, the interesting reflection here is we've seen the care that you put into handling queer characters and other titles. Uh, and it's important to create that space and I think the world has changed in the last few years. We're seeing not only things like Marvel and DC Pride anthologies, where there's all kinds of characters being used in these types of formats. In the most recent Pride anthologies at Marvel, there's been like six or seven or eight trans characters in a support group who all have superpowers and silly names, you know. Uh, but not only that, in the X-Men, we've had uh, recent New Mutants groups and X-Factor that are primarily queer members of the team. Uh, it's it, The world has changed pretty vastly. And I don't know, Twitter and fandom can be really awful to people when they get uh, a bee in their bonnet, if you will. Uh, but I, I, having met you, I see the care that you put into things. Uh, I'm sorry that that happened that way. Well, no, no, I, I appreciate it. I mean, look, I'm not like the victim of it. You know, no, 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 it was no, just no. a thing that didn't work out. <laughs> um, and, you know, you're you're obviously right. I mean, I think that the most important factor about that is how many of those characters are being created and written by queer creators, which sure. I which I am not. So that would have perhaps made people feel a little more comfortable, you know, knowing that the person behind the screen was not actively trying to antagonize them. Uh, if, if there was maybe a little more tangible evidence uh, that, that this was not not coming from a place of, you know, punching down. But um, yeah, I, I the short answer is, and I, I think most writers, you know, would say this, and I think most straight white cis male writers like me would say this. It it is more interesting to write about lots of different kinds of people, especially a book like that, which was going to have the entire New Warriors original team and the entire New Warriors, you know, the new team. Uh, it would not have been 
fun or interesting for me or the reader for everyone to kind of look like me and and feel like me and talk like me doesn't mean I did it correctly, but it it was certainly coming from a place of, uh, you know, wanting it to wanting these characters to reflect the landscape of young people in the world I lived in, which at that time was kind of like affluent Brooklyn, where I thought, you know, I hear kids having conversations uh, down at the ice cream uh, stands uh, on the promenade. And I'm like, this must be what high schoolers are like now. (laughs) (laughs) And then, you know, filter that through my middle-aged brain uh, and show it to literally all of America on a slow news day. uh, And uh, I may have not been fully correct. When you say no malice intended, do you mean the Fantastic Four villain malice or the X-Men villain malice? Man, speaking of John Byrne, right? Uh, definitely all of the above. None of those things intended. Well, and, and to sort of connect to the, the New York New Warriors talk, I very much enjoyed your one-shot uh, Blade Darkhold, uh, which gave a surprise cameo to one of those characters with, with B-negative. Uh, showing up as a receptionist. Yeah, I mean that uh, was just that was just for me. You know that was sure. <laughs> that was that was a desire to be. You know, because people do ask me about this stuff, but they rarely ask. They really ask questions that have direct answers. Uh, people have questions about like what happened, and then I say, well, it's kind of a long, boring story, and then that's you know that's the end of it. But I I love be negative in particular. And I thought it was such a fun, when you're doing an alternate universe blade and there's kind of no rules, I thought it was such a fun way of saying, like, I also remember New Warriors, you know, that <laughs> that was real. I worked on that. And here's one of them. And if there's opportunities to bring back more of them in the future, uh, you know, in an appropriate setting, I I probably would. Uh, but I think talking about, sorry, but uh, talking about getting into Marvel through the the 90s cartoons i loved that that in your original uh reveals for the being a be negative character that was inspired by the animated morbius yes uh, with the suckers on the hands <laughs> yes yes and that that was uh that was the artist's idea <laughs> that was uh, a luciano vecchio, we are big luciano vecchio fans around here. yeah um thank you for saying it out loud because i've only talked to him on the computer uh yes luciano uh we- Huge I've, fan, huge. I've fan. met Luciano, and he's been on my show. Just a great guy. He's such yeah. a great guy, and so talented. Like really doing that sort of, um, that sort of like uh, art designer, like action figure box style art. Um, I, I think my biggest disappointment regarding New Warriors was um, not getting to, not, not getting to write something that had him doing interiors. Uh, on it. And there's uh, scenes in particular with Firestar, which he and I both love Firestar, um, that um, if anybody has those and wants to leak them, I'm not going to do it because I imagine (laughs) I would get in trouble. But um, yeah, no, it's, you know, uh, I'm proud of the work that I did on it. I'm sorry that we couldn't release it in a way that felt like it would work. Um, I, I, think that everybody you know everybody will survive <laughs> like we do with i know youtube is obsessed with lost media now and you know <laughs> superman lives and jodorowsky's dune and you know, all of those all of those platonic ideal projects just throw this one on the pile you know it's just 
it's it's gone, but there's cool stuff, but you can't see it. Well, and there was a lot of stuff lost in those years. Uh, the COVID crazy, you know, big big things that were announced and never came out. Uh, there's there's a lot of that stuff. Uh, Daniel, I have three quick questions for you, and then we're going to transition to interview uh, or to the issue review. I mean, excuse me. Number one. I'm a therapist and a writer, and there's a running joke in my house about children that are being raised by therapists and writers and how they're going to turn out. Now, you're, of course, married to Jennifer Wright, who's an incredible writer. How is your child going to be with two writers as a parent? Uh, You picked a perfect day to ask this because we are over the moon about our two-year-old checkup appointment this morning where they asked how she was doing on verbal, and they said she should be able to to do simple sentences by now. And I I told the doctor like, oh yeah, she'll say like, daddy, sit on the floor, draw. And the doctor said like, no, we mean like, thank you. We mean like <laughs> mama up. So yeah, me and my wife are, are little chatterboxes around the house. So uh, certainly, certainly in as far as, as writing and talking, uh, I think, I think that she's, she's, uh, absolutely following in our footsteps will she be terrible at math probably (laughs) (laughs) uh second question x-men aspirations as a writer desperately yeah no i've talked to them about it um i think that you know there there were such big plans going for for so long and everybody wants to write everybody wants to write the (laughs) x-men so um you know they know they know that i'm interested uh i guess it just depends on what the next five years of of x-men looks like and if there's if there's an opportunity i'd be yeah i'd be thrilled are you still uh is nightcrawler still at the top of that list 100 yes (laughs) are you reading are you reading size spurrier's nightcrawler he's he's about to be spider-man I've read some of it. I'm really behind, but he's so good. And he makes me not want to do Nightcrawler because <laughs> he is um, amazing at writing Nightcrawler. He makes me want to just like stay a fan and do a character that I'm not worried about uh, blowing it. Yeah, they're about to do the uncanny Spider-Man. It's Nightcrawler in a Spidey uniform. I'm, I'm pretty thrilled. I'm, I'm very excited. <laughs> Uh, and third, and this is just a random because you mentioned it earlier, I have a jukebox brain. I hear a phrase and then something gets stuck in my head. And I've had the Muppet Babies theme song playing for the last 30 minutes. Uh, could sure. you still sing the song? Oh, like when your room looks kind of weird and you wish that you weren't there. You, you could close, close your, your eyes, eyes and make and believe. You can, you can be, be anywhere. anywhere. I wondered if we I wonder if we were similarly I, I don't know I don't know all of the extended one, but I know when they're all they're all doing their little their little roll call. I know that the last one is Animal Dance. <laughs> I remember yeah, that. That's one of those cartoons I have not seen in like 30 years, but it's no crazy. idea if it holds up, but there is some fun Marvel stuff in it because it was a, it was a Marvel co-production. That's right. There's that yeah. silver Spider-Man at the end on the title card. Spider-Man riffed in one episode. Mm-hmm. I was chatting with my friend the other day about like which which Muppet are you weirdly and I was like, I think I'd be Animal. No, maybe maybe I'm Kermit and he's like, "Chad, you're Scooter." I was like, oh, that's entirely fair, actually. I'm Scooter, and it's okay. Yeah, just own it. (laughs) With that, we're going to transition into the Hidden Years reviews. Uh, uh, Daniel, thank you. Thank you for sharing your memories. I'm so happy to get to know you and hear your voice. Uh, Makes me an even bigger fan of your work. 
Um, the Hidden Years obviously is set in the pre-continuity between Volume 1 and uh, Giant Size Number 1. Is this a series that the three of you were familiar with before we launched this episode? Is this something you read or something you looked at before? I, I knew it was I happening. It. Yeah, I, I read it as a kid when I was, in, I think, a teenager. I read it and I was very excited about it because for me, I had read, I had seen the X-Men cartoon. X-Men cartoon is my intro too. But then, like, as far as getting into the books, I'd read an Executioner song, but then I was gifted a bunch of reprints of Silver Age stuff. So the the, the original five very quickly became my X-Men. So I was very excited about the series. Um, it does not age as well as I remember. It's good, I, mostly. <laughs> I, go I, I know I must have... I know I must have read issues of it, but I was not a regular X-Men reader in general at the time. Um, and so I I only have a passing familiarity with it. Most of the the John Byrne stuff that I've read is really more DC, the uh the Superman run and, and things like that. Generations. Uh Daniel, how about you? Yeah, I knew that it existed. Um it felt like such a weird little cul-de-sac, and you know, you only have so much money in your pocket when you go to the comic book store. So I was like, oh, that's cool. I, my, my big takeaway was like, oh, it's so cool that they're letting him do that. <laughs> <laughs> this series is John Byrne's love letter to Neil Adams, kind of first and foremost. It goes for 22 issues. We are on issues 17 and 18 today. The My biggest problem and the, the hardest part in reviewing this with new guests each time is there's like six or seven stories happening in every issue and there's a lot of characters running around. This one was simpler than some of our recent episodes, but it gets more complicated before the end. So <laughs> listeners, feel free to read along as always. Uh Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores led by Walmart and Target are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durban Marshall credit card bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durban Marshall credit card bill. Previously in the hidden years, Lorna Dane was visiting Salem Center, New York, and she was approached by a strange man named Tad Carter, who mind controlled her just a little bit, but she doesn't remember. The X-Men, all except for Professor X, have just returned from a mission in the Himalayas, and they found Craven the Hunter waiting in their home. And I love this guy. We've done a whole trial of Craven the Hunter on my show. He's one of my favorites. Uh, and he is holding Avia, the uh, the the mute bird woman that we keep talking about, because she's still here in this book doing nothing. Uh, he has demanded that one of the X-Men submit to being hunted, or he will kill her. Meanwhile, Professor X is hanging out with single mom Terry Martin. He's recently performed unauthorized psychic surgery on her daughter Ashley, who is 10, to make sure she can't access her mutant powers. But also, they seem to be fucking... Okay, last six episodes, uh, last six issues of The Hidden Years begins now. Uh, we're going to start with X-Men, The Hidden Years, number 17. This is called Hunter and Hunted. It's from May 2001. John Byrne, writer, penciler, and letterer. Tom Palmer on inks. Gregory Wright, my friend, on colors. And Jason Le Jason Liebig on edits. Uh, the cover of this book, we see Beast looking kind of derpy and helpless as Craven the Hunter stalks behind him with a knife in his teeth. Uh, basically, what are your thoughts on this cover? Uh, not, in, not in his teeth. He's got a knife in his hands. He's ready to jump out of the tree and kill the beast. Do you guys have uh, any one, thoughts on, on this cover? Great, great Kill the Beast, uh, Paul. One of my favorite Disney songs. Yeah. 
Um, yeah, I mean, it's it's accurate. It's <laughs> this is the issue. <laughs> it is as, is as delivered. It's basically what's happening. <laughs> yeah, it, and and you know, it doesn't. As far as Craven designs, it doesn't get much more classic than the way he's rendered here. He's got the, the fur is- and sort of the lion face on the vest and the whole deal. My problem with Craven is Craven is one of those comic characters you can smell. Like, <laughs> like you look at Craven and you read of Craven comics, you know exactly what Craven smells like, and it's not pleasant. I'm sorry. In the early 70s, some of his appearances refer he refers to his jungle scent. It's like a thing he oh, uses gosh. to like confuse his victims. He's wow, also got yeah. poisons. It's kind of wild as an X-Men fan when you see someone like Craven on the cover fighting the X-Men, which is always fun. But this guy has kind of a surprising history with the X-Men. This is also very reminiscent for those that are reading X-Force. The cloned son of Craven recently hunted Beast on Krakoa, and there's that infamous cover where he's wearing the Beast's like blue fur as like his cowl uh, on the issue, which is which is crazy. So this is a Craven Beast fight that you may not have been aware of uh, mixed into this series, which is a lot of fun. Uh, we open the book and Beast is hiding in a tree. He's being hunted. He's nearby. I can almost feel his eyes on me, watching, waiting, biding his time like the hunter he is, waiting for me to show one fatal weakness. Uh, back inside, the X-Men are monitoring Avia, who is wounded and getting medical treatment again. I would love to hear your initial thoughts on Avia, who is a character I'm sure none of you have heard of before. She's very odd. Uh, w- what are your thoughts? <laughs> I mean, so like, she I barely exists, right? <laughs> like, he even kind of draws I... her as negative space. <laughs> Yeah, the the color the there's no coloring whatsoever besides the sort of gold neck rings, uh, all sort of age white. Uh, I did go back and read some of the earlier issues uh, and, and saw a little bit of Avia before she was rendered unconscious for issues on end, um, but still not much there. She serves no purpose except to be a hostage. Uh, she gets nailed to the wall, knocked around a little bit, and then they set her free. It's it's a very uncomfortable story. I'll save my thoughts on her before uh, for, I to get a little farther into the series. But here, uh, we learn that Craven has poisoned her, and he will only give them the antidote if uh, Beast agrees to be hunted. Uh, Craven basically says, I'm tired of fighting Spider-Man. My skills have grown dull, so now I need to hunt the Beast. And uh, if Beast wins, then Craven will give him the antidote. That's kind of all you need. Uh, Beast is hopping through the woods outside the mansion, apparently. Uh, Craven has set a whole bunch of traps. And as he comes across these different traps, uh, he keeps getting like mildly poisoned. Okay, meanwhile, there's a guy named Tad Carter who is hanging out with a group of mysterious telepaths. And I sent you guys all an email about this with like a PDF. I hope that was helpful because this is a crazy story. This is the group that beckoned to... Okay. Tad Carter. <laughs> Let me take just a moment <laughs> to introduce this guy. We'll do this once really quick. Tad Carter is a character from an issue called Amazing Adult Fantasy, which is, uh, we talked about it briefly last episode. It's a Lee Ditko story from 1962. At the end of this story, which is only five pages long, he's beckoned to by a group of mysterious telepaths. And apparently now he's hanging out with these guys here. The only thing that makes that relevant is he uses the word mutant in that story. And we also talked last episode around the same time, John Byrne was also writing and producing Marvel The Lost Generation, 
which is all about the series first line where he's weaving in a ton of old continuity into the modern books. And he's doing that here with a few storylines in this odd group. Uh, Tad is missing Lorna. She's been gone for too long. And the others are like, be patient. Remember how we were in suspended animation for 10 years and now we're out for one week? She still has time to get back to us and then we can put her into suspended animation with us. These guys are called The Promise. Uh, it's very weird. And we also get reference to another old story, which is another email I had to send to you guys. 1956. It's Marvel's maybe most racist book ever. Uh, oh. It's called The Yellow Claw. <laughs> this is a guy who has been used in the modern Agents of Atlas series as a guy named Plan Su. They've tried to kind of reincorporate him into the modern Great mythos, series. but not yeah. make it so racist. He's literally colored yellow. He's got like the Fu Manchu and he's... Like the conniving, creepy villain that has a surprisingly long Marvel history for as racist. Franco used him for a while in Captain America. Yeah. And, yeah, and Nick Fury. Nick Fury. Yeah. He's used quite frequently. He's a Chinese man. Uh, he's he's drawn like a wizened like caricature. He's planning to take over the world. The series in the 50s only ran for four issues. But Jimmy Woo, who's a guy that we know from the movies and from the Agents of Atlas series, is the American agent that fights against him. And his niece, Suwon, is always turning against him. Okay, there's, there's a lot here that we just don't have to go into. But this particular story in this book is called Concentrate on Chaos. The Yellow Claw has a group of mutants. And yes, again, they are called mutants here, which is why Byrne is using them, who are joining together in a mutant circuit which is the thing we see on Krakoa often now, right? Mutants using their, their talents all together. They're using their combined psychic powers to rewrite reality in small towns. They're like making boats fly and, and apple trees are growing eggs instead of apples. And like the sidewalks are bu like buckling. And now he's ready to attack the big city, but Jimmy Woo defeats him. That's really all you need. There's this weird group of telepaths that are called mutants. So these guys are also part of the promise, at least some of them. I'm trying to keep it simple, I promise. <laughs> 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 promise no pun intended uh, so Lorna keeps hearing voices in her mind and they're calling her name and the X-Men want to go help Beast but they promise not to and Craven's watching Beast get dumber okay then we jump to Dunphy, Illinois hometown of the Beast where Charles is checking in with FBI agent Fred Duncan, who we've talked about on my show extensively. Go see the Fred Duncan episode with Seth Martell for more information on this very ancillary character. And he's shocked that Charles is still alive because he was pretending to be dead. And then the Sentinel's been cleaned up outside and Xavier wants time to study this 10-year-old child that he performed unauthorized brain surgery on. And Terry, the single mom entered and is like, hey, boys, the other FBI guys are having coffee and donuts in the kitchen. Wink, wink. Hey, Charles, you can call me Terry. And she like shakes her ass a little bit. And Fred's like, Charles, damn nice. And you kind of get the vibe that they're fucking. But also Charles is staying in her home. And is he raping her with his mind? What is happening? Let me pause here and ask your thoughts on both the promise and the Charles and Terry romance. <laughs> I mean, where to start? Um, <laughs> Tad Carter, a character um, most famous previous to this for appearing in Amazing Fantasy 14 and looking exactly like Peter Parker, who appears in Amazing Fantasy 15. <laughs> so basically being a Steve Ditko self-portrait. Yeah, I took the exact same notes. I thought that was so uh, interesting from a sort of like macro Marvel history view. Like you can see them figuring it out almost there you're almost there i will say if every issue of hidden years that i've read xavier sort of oscillates between cruel and creepy 
Those are kind of his two speeds. I could do a lifetime without Charles Xavier flirting. <laughs> yeah, I think I might be the only one here who thinks that horny Xavier is the best Xavier. Um, <laughs> I, I I think that it's hard. I, I think it, it's really hard to do it without it being creepy. But I, it's such a part of that character that I think that it it might as well be sort of like embraced and sort of woven it. And I think that they've they've done a good job as often as they've done a bad job of of weaving that that part of his personality uh, into like the motivations for for his actions. And Terry seems fairly age appropriate at least. So so on that level it works. <laughs> in a few yeah. issues we're going to see Xavier dump Terry Martin and he's basically like I have no time for romance and he drives away. It's it's ridiculous. When you think of Xavier romances you think Lilandra, Moira McTaggart, Amelia Vote. You don't think Terry Martin but it happened. <laughs> <laughs> no, she's not one of the big ones. Uh, okay, then we have one more scene change back to where the X-Men are. Iceman and Alex are flirting with each other so hard, and it's not intended that way. But goodness. <laughs> they keep fighting over Lorna. Havoc's like, whoa, Jean's telepathy makes me so confused. And Bobby's like, you'll never be a real X-Man. And Havoc's like, at least I didn't quit the team. And Bobby's like, and this is like a genuine quote from the issue. Maybe I can find two minutes to push that fancy headdress of yours down around your ankles. And Alex goes in another direct quote, wait, wait, Fro or excuse me, why wait, Frosty? Ooh, maybe it's Frosty. <laughs> sure. <laughs> he goes, hey, it's theirs if they want it. Why wait, Frosty? I can spare the 30 seconds it'll take to stick a carrot up your nose. And oh my God, they're so horny for each other. And then Gene like blasts <laughs> their brains. And Scott's like, shape up, you guys. And Lorna, stop being so distracted. And Alex is like, back off and stop playing Tin God. And Iceman's like, fine, I'll polish you off later. Oh my goodness. Uh, I love when the team argues, but there's so much homophobic, like homophobic subtext in this scene. It makes me laugh really hard. Uh <laughs> well, something I know from Inferno, everybody wants to fuck Alex Summers, so... Uh-huh. I yeah, would that, I would fuck Alex Summers. That's true. He is a sought <laughs> after. He is a prize. But he does have to take the headdress off first and maybe wear the goblin prince costume. We'll see. We'll see how I'm feeling. Get that get that uh <laughs> that uh what is it? Like a reverse deep V? I don't even yep. know how to describe that. Yep. It's yep. a you know, leather like, jacket. There's it's like that thing where you get blasted and like there's just enough clothing left to cover your nipples and your bits, and that's that's all you need. <laughs> uh daniel do you want to take the second half of this issue and tell us what happens sure well i want to take one more moment on that scene because that's to me is is this entire issue it's um hank uh sorry um uh, uh alex and bobby bickering with each other um you know hornily and uh cyclops being very like all business, you know, he's cyclopsing really hard in this issue, <laughs> but he's also ignoring the reddest red flags about what's going on with Lorna, where she's hearing voices in her head and the X-Men fight psychics. They fight demons. Like there's so many reasons to take this seriously. And Cyclops is just like, not now, Lorna, we have to go totally uh, renege on our promise to stay out of this fight between beast and Craven. You know, he's they're out there ostensibly to just like check on Beast, I guess, but they also promised not to interfere. And then Gene just whips out a psychic blast out of nowhere that makes it clear that they don't need to be fighting Craven at all. Like, this is a very fixable problem. <laughs> they're, they're totally going in on his most dangerous game scheme, just sort of out of like principle, which I, I think is kind of nice, I guess. But there are seven extremely powerful X-Men 
with a very like silver age style craven who is merely withholding the antidote to poison this is a problem with a thousand solutions and none of them should be hunting beast in the woods right and my first note is gene could just take this from his mind right like yeah there but he's got nipple lasers they are afraid he does have nipple lasers so what i thought reading this was like oh well there must be some reason that gene isn't doing that and then we'll get to the end of the issue and you find out uh, no it was absolutely on the table this entire time <laughs> <laughs> but we rejoin uh hank he's kind of stumbling around he's been grazed by all the traps so even though he thinks he evaded the traps all the poison is getting into his system and that's craven's real plan and the sort of sort of arc that that hank is going through starts emerging here where for whatever reason the poison is not just making him woozy it's making him more feral and this is later sort of revealed to be like a big fear of his is turning into a beast so craven gets the jump on hank fight kind of begins in earnest um i, I gotta say I, I do love this part um it did feel very neil adamsy to me i didn't know if this was just burn being looser because he was later or if there was actually like kind of an adams homage thing going um and i i think it's a brilliant matchup i think that whatever you know i i joke about the contrivances of this issue but whatever you need to do to make craven hunt beast that's a good idea and i i was excited to see it um i also wrote down in my notes that they both jump on each other with both feet together like nightcrawler <laughs> in the x-men arcade game <laughs> But I think the main thing about, about this fight is that Beast's uh, inner monologue or outer monologue is just relentless. Um, I wrote down that he sounds like Frasier on speed. Uh, <laughs> his brain is supposed to be foggy because he's poisoned, but he is so, so eloquent and like so alliterative. Uh, and it, it made me think of what it must be like to write a character like the demon where the character demands you know that that everything be in this rhyming verse but in the case of beast it's it's totally self-inflicted like john Byrne has just decided like i'm gonna write a fight scene with two thesauruses open and <laughs> just make this the most like verbose complicated erudite character in all of marvel comics and and listeners here's one sentence for you've you've heard us do a lot of beast on this show but here's just one sentence during this fight well he's got his toes wrapped around vines he says it will take more than a transitory torpor of a single extremity to abridge the bellicosity of the most exuberant of the x-men oh he's exhausting <laughs> <laughs> it is exhausting and craven even comments on how exhausting he is he says uh he says something like you know you talk like a tree of chattering baboons yep, yep. is your strategy to bore your enemies to death well he's compensating like you know i do the same thing when i'm drunk i get more eloquent and use bigger words and like more alliteration it's just you know <laughs> he, he he's compensating for the fact he feels his brain slowing down no, I think that's a good, I think that's a good, in, yeah, I think that's a great in-story explanation, because uh, that is the, the revealed to be the fear of, of what is happening. And it does happen. So that's when Beast starts to kind of lose it and just really beat the crap out of Craven. Uh, <laughs> and should. yeah, of course he's Craven. But uh, Gene uh, senses that Beast's thought patterns are becoming erratic. Uh, so then they like, they're ostensibly going to find him, but then they're like really going to find him. They start walking quickly so that uh, they can uh, stop him from, from 
uh, executing what Jean says is one of Beast's greatest fears, uh, which is, you know, revealed to be like losing control and you know, murdering one of his opponents. So um, meanwhile, uh, Alex is looking for Lorna and she just fully vanishes off panel. And Alex yells, Lorna, at the sky. And that's all we find out about that for a little while. Uh, they catch up with Beast. Uh, Craven uh, panics, uh, at, begs the X-Men to save him, essentially, before the Beast can can both kill himself and commit an act that Hank himself will never forgive himself for. And as Beast passes out, he says, he says, you don't understand, I've got to save Avia and save dot 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 myself. <laughs> so passes out wakes up in hq it's very much like the ending of a harry potter book right like he passes out but then he wakes up in the hospital and everybody explains why everything is okay uh <laughs> craven has handed over avia's antidote because like he's a man of his word and uh cyclops because of the I i'm inferring you know jumping in midstream that cyclops because of the legal status of the x-men right now and they're kind of like quasi-secret identities he says we gotta let craven go because no one will want the authorities asking why was Craven at the Charles Xavier School. And this is where I wrote this down. Craven himself has kind of a weird little character arc here, where earlier during the fight, Beast is making fun of Craven for talking in the third person and confesses that Beast also has a habit of talking in the third person. And then here he's he's talking to, to Bobby, who is objecting to letting Craven off scot-free. <laughs> And Craven uh, says, and why not, boy? Craven, dot, 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 I, like he's learning to say the word I instead of the word Craven. Um, very unnecessary, like m character maturing out of nowhere, but I noticed it and I appreciated it. Uh, he says he kept his part of the bargain, which he has, so they do let him go. But Gene also just casually wipes his memory. Like really cavalier, you know, low-key psychic lobotomy. But but only of the X-Men. She leaves the rest. Xavier sometimes takes their whole brain. She just takes the X-Men memories away, which if you're going to have ethics, that's the right way to do it. <laughs> yeah, I, I had forgotten how frequently uh, that kind of stuff happened. Uh, uh -huh. Comics of comics of the original sort of John Byrne era and then comics, you know, inspired by it. But that was the point where I was like, well, if you were willing to do that the entire time, then Beast did not have to fight him in the woods. You know, you could have just gone in there and been like, oh, it's in his left boot. Bobby, you know, put him in a block of ice. Scott, take his shoe off. This is a, this problem <laughs> is over. It, it's, it's kind of like a conceit of a, doing a prequel series, though. Like, you know, you can't mess with the canon too much, so somebody's got to lose their memory. Uh, and, right. like, they use that method a lot in this series, like a disturbing amount in this series, which I guess is uh, appropriate considering they're all taught by Charles Xavier. But like in a previous <laughs> issue, uh, they 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 put a mental block in place where these two people who have done this murder can't reveal that the X-Men are the X-Men. Right. Every and time they start to say that Warren is the angel, they just sort of freeze and forget what they were saying. It, See, see our episode about evil Uncle Dazzler uh, previously, uh, <laughs> uh, the one just before this one. The beast, the beast theme here, and this is something we see. I, I don't know. I can think of seven or eight different comics over the years where they they mess with this idea of their beast is this very intelligent scientist, 
And he's got this bestial nature underneath. Let me read just one quick line from his speech. All my life, I've been afraid of something like this. I've known intellectually that I was not the brute who looked back from me, who looked back at me from every mirror, but always it seemed as if a darker nature might lie a hair's breadth below my careful veneer of gentility. And the idea of there's an animal underneath him that is counter to his intelligent side is a really interesting parallel to the beast that exists in the comics now, who is a very intelligent monster. He's using the science to be a horrible beast, uh, which is a really interesting thing because of the juxtaposition and the evolution of what that's meant for this character has uh, has changed. Uh, Daniel, any thoughts on that? Well, I, I think it's something that they kind of, that comes and goes. I mean, it's such a Marvel comics thing, you know, the Hulk obviously being kind of a Jekyll and Hyde, but also, you know, uh, a, a Dr. Frankenstein and Frankenstein's monster in one body. And in the X-Men, you know, more so Wolverine. Like, I think the reason that this, that I think of this as a beast thing that keeps going away and coming back is that this is also 100% Wolverine's deal. Like, as soon as he he's such a bright shiny object that as soon as like you have another superstar character whose big fear is going feral and hurting somebody he loves it's kind of hard for that to be beast's thing as sure. well so i think one of the reasons it's happening here is because it does kind of exist in a wolverine free continuity and beast is free to like really make a meal of it but i think of it as being like sort of a stan and jack thing and then kind of like didn't really feel like it was part of the beast that i knew growing up in the 90s like he felt very synthesized like he had the irony of being like a gentle person who spoke eloquently but you know looked monstrous but i never felt like there was any tension there i felt like this is a character who you know that's that story the story that they're telling is not one of like oh he could go feral at any second it's about a guy who has kind of mastered it within himself but the world doesn't see it you know which is another another way of doing it that i, that I think is is really successful um but it has always been there i mean it's it's yeah. it's it's in the character's dna you know and, and there's, uh, the a, there's a couple issues now. The, there's a couple issues in the future where it's beast and wolverine exploring this side of themselves together uh which is a story we'll see much later in the continuity uh do you want to tell us how the issue ends with havoc <laughs> yeah so <laughs> havoc <laughs> who has been missing for like a while and nobody has mentioned it. <laughs> Havoc and Lorna went into the woods with them, did not return. No one has said anything until Havoc bursts in. Uh, and he says that uh, Lorna floated into the sky and disappeared to be continued. This is one of the issues where you get to see the circles that are on Havoc's chest are his energy collecting. It's not a, an official part of his costume. And this is one of the issues where every time Byrne draws Havoc, you see the, the circles kind of at different sizes. Sometimes they're small. Sometimes they take up larger portions of his body. Uh, it, this is a fun issue. And when, I, when I'm when i doing my assignments, Daniel, I tried to give you the, the funnest part to <laughs> review, but I hope, it was, <laughs> I hope it was fun for you to do this Craven Beast uh, revisit with us. No, I genuinely enjoyed it. Uh, I was surprised how much I liked this. Um, I know that John Byrne is also, you know, a bit of a crank uh, now. Uh, and when I got to the line about um, Beast uh, slamming Congress for handing out tax cuts so freely, uh, <laughs> I, I wrote I wrote that down. I was like, oh, is that one of John Byrne's things? Is that he thinks there's too many tax cuts? But I, you know, I, I think that that on the whole, uh, I, I really enjoyed this. 
Uh, number 18 is the next issue. It's called Promise of a New Tomorrow. It continues the storyline. We have one of my lesser favorite covers from the Hidden Years. We've got all, I don't know, one, two, three, four, five, six of the X-Men Havocs missing in kind of a glowing spotlight circle being surrounded by some blank figures. It's the same creative team. And uh, Trey, do you want to open this one up for us? Give us a, tell us what happens at the beginning. Absolutely. So we open roughly 20 minutes before the end of the previous issue. Angel is flying through the night sky, headed to Westchester. He wasn't in the previous issue, if you noticed. Uh, so he's headed to Westchester. He'd been spending time tending to his estate that he recently inherited. And suddenly, he sees Lorna Dane flying through the air, seemingly not under her own power, and decides to follow. Uh, back at the headquarters of the X-Men, Havoc describes a similar sight to the rest of the team, uh, Lorna flying away. Iceman grumbles that Alex should have done something to stop her or try to follow her, but Cyclops points out that, like the rest of the team currently present, his brother's powers aren't exactly conducive to stopping Lorna without hurting her. Just then the phone rings, and Angel reports in from his own pursuit of Lorna. Meanwhile, Lorna is held in a pitch-black room when suddenly a door opens and Tad Carter enters, telling her she's not in any danger. He takes her to meet the rest of his team, where their leader, Tobias Messenger, introduces himself. Tobias is a telepath, but unlike Professor Xavier, he is only able to communicate mentally. And, and, Angel, always, and okay. always at really high volume. <laughs> yes, he, he's, he is the, the relative you have who only emails in all caps. <laughs> I was thinking I had like a like of an uncle who's like hearing aids are always a little off and he's always yelling at the table. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, um, so uh, we go back to the X-Men. Uh, Angel is flying ahead of the X-Men's jet, leading them to Lorna's location. They land and Angel takes them to the gate of a large house. Havoc criticizes Angel for not investigating further. They're really hard on Angel for seemingly not doing enough in this issue. But Angel sort of gets the last laugh there. He invites Havoc to, to approach the gate, as, as he says Angel should have, and some invisible force instantly renders Havoc unconscious, just as happened to Angel earlier when he did, in fact, try to investigate. Jean uh, tries to scan for who or what might be inside, but she's not able to sense anything. Just then, a giant monster attacks, just in time for us to shift our focus to suburban Illinois where Professor Xavier is still staying at the home of Terry Martin. Terry wonders why Xavier allowed her daughter to remember any of the Sentinel attack when he could have completely wiped the events from her mind. Xavier sympathizes and muses that Terry probably wishes that Ashley's powers never manifested and that he never arrived at her door. Terry agrees that this is partly true, but she'd be lying if she said she wished she'd ever met Charles Xavier. Oof, those two make me uncomfortable. <laughs> this is also where I noticed that uh, her outfit had turned into sort of like a summery little tied shirt, like right under her, mm -hmm. like a midriff bearing, uh, a little knot right under her, her breasts. And that is not something that artists do accidentally. <laughs> and I'm just going to let my hair down now. <laughs> <laughs> 
there's a point where she goes, did you read my mind, Charles? I asked you not to. And he says, telepathy was not required to know what you were thinking. Your concern is that's plain on your face. Uh, this this woman, you just get the vibe that he's like influencing her thoughts and like controlling what she's doing. It's very uncomfortable to me. I also, the only scene I want to revisit, and Trey, that was really fun, is when they first meet Tobias Messenger. And, and listeners, adjust oh, yeah. your volume as needed. <laughs> <laughs> I'm just going to do this once. And uh, Tad Carter leads Lorna into the room and she says, where am I? And he goes, a place of safety in a world gone mad, Miss Dane. My name is Tobias Messenger and this is my house. And she goes, oh, you're kind of like Professor X, but your voice is so much louder than his. And we learn that he's uh, he was born without the power of speech. This is my only means of communication and I can broadcast only my thoughts at the volume in which I hear them in my own head. This, the idea of this guy just yelling in her brain it makes me laugh really hard. It's my only the only thing I like about him, frankly. <laughs> it's so funny. And it's such an unnecessary detail, but it's also like it's inherently clever. Like it's a science fiction idea that is, you know, in and of itself like very clever. But it, but imagining it happening is extremely funny. <laughs> it's also it's, the sort of thing that could easily be a gag on Venture Brothers or something. Yeah. Ignore me! <laughs> like, like constantly yes. shouting telepath. 100%. Yeah. <laughs> like, because he can only hear it as like, that's it. It's that kind of cleverness <laughs> that lends itself, I think, better to comedy than it does to science fiction. But and lest you forget, is... there was a giant monster in the streets as well. We like that. was like, wait, yes. where'd that come from? <laughs> it's right. John Byrne. So I'm not sure the humor is intentional. <laughs> I believe you're correct. Yeah. Uh, James, will you take us through the last half of the issue? So Lorna is being filled in with the whole situation with the promise. Um, the whole backstory we talked about with Yellow Claw, how he tried to use them um, as this tool, and eventually they escaped. And that's where they hook up with, um, oh, God, it's not Blinko's name already. Messenger. <laughs> uh, Tobias. Tobias Messenger? Tobias, there you go. Tobias Messenger. And he his whole mission here is like we're gonna wait until humanity has advanced far enough that we that they've caught up with us and apparently the whole deal with them is they have been uh it's the it's the way of an immortality that i hate where it's you know we're we're gonna go and suspend animation for 10 years and then we're only gonna be away for one week and that's why we've only aged like a year since like we were last seen in amazing fantasy 14 this story is so weird and I, I mentioned this in the last episode i'll cover it here briefly we have xavier whose dream is to coexist with humans and we have magneto who's like i don't want to coexist with humans we're going to claim our own space and this is kind of the separationist fantasy of instead we as mutants this group that promise we're going to remove ourselves from humanity but it's not really that we're going to put ourselves to sleep and every 10 years we're going to wake up to see if humanity's ready for us like there's a weird motivation what the fuck does this guy want i don't understand what his goals are this is an odd odd character i feel and like you're checking in on like your animal crossing town you know <laughs> like, <laughs> yeah they're fine <laughs> And we will uh, see this revisited because like this group is in to the end of the series. So we have them in the next four issues still. But there's something I don't understand what Tobias Messenger is trying to do here. Uh, John Byrne had to come up with a way of like why these characters are still alive. But suspended animation for 10 years, awake for a week just to see what the world looks like. Let's gather one more mutant and then put her in with us. And then we'll see you in another 10 years. It's a weird story. I don't like it. <laughs> It it's a very 1950s pulp sci-fi idea. Yeah, it's it's yeah. very much lifted from those amazing fantasy tales of Sanja's shoes. Yeah, 
but like they make such a big deal out of being immortal in the previous issue and again i'm coming into the story cold so i'm like oh they you know he's like you you might be uh much older than you look but to me you're still a little kid and I'm like okay well that's a, that's like a fiction trope that i'm familiar with right like he must be very old but still look like a kid no he is effectively still a child because they are asleep all the time these guys are only immortal on this weird technicality but they're talking with the authority of like people who have been doing stuff the whole time but they've got the learning beds speaking of you know apparently the learning beds (laughs) it's like baby superman in the in the 70s movie where he's sort of bombarded with education on the whole trip to earth Right, Lorna, right. Lorna says, what's this promise business? And he says, the name I selected for this group, Miss <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> Since that is what we represent, the promise of a more hopeful tomorrow. You've seen the fears and hatreds of humanity. How can the human race, <laughs> how the human race can even turn on itself? And she goes, sure, the Holocaust, ethnic cleansing, but but there can be what one final outcome of the volatile relation between humans and mutant disdain, an outcome even Xavier and Magneto cannot refuse to see forever. And I don't, I st- again, he's explaining himself, but I don't understand at all what his goal is here. It's uh, it's very, very strange. I also uh, took a note that ethnic cleansing is in quote, like Lorna found out about it very recently. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> like she's not, you know, he's like, yeah, no, I think I saw an article about that somewhere. <laughs> uh, James, keep us going. <laughs> all right. So the X-Men are making very short work of this very Atlas Comics monster. Um, so the promise go into plan B, which is to make the X-Men attack each other by making them hallucinate that they are monsters, that old chestnut. Uh, and there's some fighty fight there. Um, Cyclops starts to figure it out, but then Jean sees that she's holding hands with a monster and she takes, um, then she fights him and then Havoc fights Scott. And then, there's, uh, there's something very funny in the scene about their monster forms, like, Ace, a, Iceman seems Angel as like this gargoyle with wings, and Angel sees Iceman as this like wispy, creepy, icy demon. Uh, the way they view each other kind of cracks me up in this. I I, I don't know. There's something uh, I don't I, I don't know the psychology of it, but there's something really interesting about it. John Byrne was having fun with monster designs, although they also kind of look <laughs> like you know Atlas Comics monsters. Not to mention it, I do think uh, they're quite cool. I like how 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 kind of squishy and asymmetrical um, they are. It feels very modern to me. Well, and Byrne just took us through the X Men fighting the Brotherhood of Evil Mutants, where Mastermind is like using crazy, crazy, creepy clown illusions to fight them, and this is very reminiscent of that, which was only like two months ago in the comic book time. So it's a, it's a lot. So then uh, one of the promise comes to Havoc, who's the the last standing X-Men, as it were, uh, as in the guise of Lorna, she does the whole kiss, he passes out thing. And then they have captured the X-Men, the promise revealed to Lorna their whole plan, but hey, we're going to make you one of us. But now they've captured the X-Men, another one of the promise who was a mom who, like, had to give up her family to join the promise, which again is not something I would say yes to. Why would you know? Uh, decides that she fancies Angel, so they're going to freeze Angel too. Uh, but they're like, okay, we're just running out of time here. We're just going to go ahead and do it. And it and it leaves off a cliffhanger of Lorna and Angel being put into these freeze cryogenic tubes and being the door closing on them as Lorna shouts, no! No! 
with her green lips and her silver suit. Uh, the members of the Promise are individually named, uh, and they come from different timelines. Tobias Messenger comes from 1859. There's characters in World War One, World War II. We'll we'll talk more about these guys next episode. But uh, the members, and some of these were revealed in the handbooks, are Gene Bittner, Tad Carter, Craig Farnsworth, Simon Lestrin, Ernest Scope, Gracie Smith, and then the blonde one that you just referenced is named uh, Lucy Robinson. And Lucy's <laughs> the one that will actually get a little bit of backstory to as we explore her in the next couple issues. This is the one that was like, hey, Angel, come with me. Uh, and that's Hidden Years 1718. What are your final thoughts as we kind of wrap up these crazy couple issues? I We didn't talk much about art, but in I did want to say in, in 17, I really loved how the climax of the story, the art, the, the, the panels start to skew on the page to mimic the movement of Beast and Craven as they fight each other. I just think Byrne, having the benefit of being a writer slash penciler, is very much able to marry the visuals to the story he's telling uh, in a cool way. There's a great panel in earlier in the issue where like Angel's wings frame the other panels on the page. And it's, you know, you know, Byrne, it was a superstar artist for a reason. Like he, the man can draw. You, you can debate whether or not he can write or not, but you know, the man can draw. <laughs> yeah. I mean, that's sort of, you guys are both sort of circling my, my biggest takeaway, which was, I loved watching the fight. Um, I loved watching the the panels kind of, you know, seeing him do do this this Neil Adams uh, riff uh, and, you know, use the conventions of, of more recent uh, comic books, being more familiar with with Burns older stuff, seeing him do these like crazy dynamic panels and canton angles and things like that. I think that the the that cuts both ways in as far as the writing is still of a previous era. So I would have trouble following the word balloons, uh, the the flow of reading, uh, especially because Beast is talking so much during during that fight. And that's when the panels start uh, becoming uh, skewed. So I ultimately, I think it's like very successful issue. And I love seeing him get to do this. I think if he had been able to kind of cut back a little bit on the, the dialogue, they might have uh, felt a little less forced to me, and I might have had more of a um, art-driven reading experience without always having to go back and trying to figure out, like, okay, in this panel, I kind of on the lower left, and then my eye, the, the path of my eye is supposed to like go kind of upwards to the right because that's how they were able to fit this much dialogue in here without disrupting the fight scene. Well, and Burn did. But, I mean, <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I mean, ultimately, like it's a it's a it's a cartoonist, you know. This is what he wanted it to be, and I think it's largely very successful. And I've interviewed Jason Liebig, the editor on these books. Although right around this time is when he was let go, and then Liza Hawkins takes over. But he he just famous like said that Burn was just impossible to work with. Any idea I had, Burn would shut it down and be like, "Fuck you." Uh, and that just it's it's kind of just how it was then. Uh, we have two Hidden Years episodes left. Uh, we have to get through Mole Man, The Promise, The Submariner, The Atlanteans, Magneto, The Eternals, and The Fantastic Four. And then we're done. 
<laughs> there's a there's a lot that happens in these uh this was a genuine joy to visit with you guys i'm smiling i had a great time it's especially just wonderful getting to know daniel thank you thank you for the gift of your time and your talents today to all three of you uh as we are wrapping up i'd love to hear any final thoughts you have and we're going to put this episode out on august 21st uh so it's gonna be the middle of the hot summer i will be at FlameCon right before this comes out we're doing a huge panel there i'm really excited and there's some really fun things coming up on the show this fall if you'd like to share where we can find you online and is there anything you would like to plug uh daniel do you want to go first sure i am trying to be off twitter i don't know what the state of twitter will be when this episode drops but i've been mm -hmm. using instagram and threads more at daniel.kibblesmith and i have a website which is kibblesmith.com which i do in fact update when there's new things coming out uh, new things that are coming out are the Loki God of Stories Omnibus, which contains our 2019 Loki stories, as well as the incredible Loki stories that inspired me by people like uh, Kieran Gillen and Al Ewing and uh, Lee Garbutt. Um, you can also pre-order the Edge of Spider-Verse paperback, which will have our story uh, featuring J. Jonah Jameson getting bit by the radioactive spider with art by crisscross uh becoming a uh, headline the spider reporter of 1755 uh i get to get uh, do this live daniel i'm going to send you a link in the chat here really quick prior to doing this podcast i write for a website called the marvel universe appendix where the characters i love most get entries as written by me and i just sent you the link to the link for the by my entry on derf there's also one on frosty i wrote these back in 2020 because i thought these characters were hilarious so uh if you'll notice at the bottom it says by chad man that's me <laughs> uh so i have absolutely read this before uh, I was 100% aware of these already. <laughs> My derf Google alerts paid off almost immediately. Uh, no, I'm very, I'm very grateful that you made this and to get to see this. I, I appreciate it. You know, that's, that's the other fun of writing for the Marvel universe. You get to write for the characters that you feel like are your friends, but then you get to put new toys in the sandbox that hopefully people pick up and use in the future. So I feel like the stuff that has happened with uh, Durf recently, some of the stuff that has happened with D-Man after we used him, uh, I can I can see uh, our our team's uh, contributions uh, living on, and it just it just means so much to me. So uh, thank you for. I love that reverence in your voice, and I hope to hear many announcements about things you have uh, moving forward. We will talk about it on the show, and we would love to have you back for a Nightcrawler episode one day. <laughs> Great idea, I'm in. <laughs> What's coming up on the Tomb of Ideas, my friends? Um. Well, right now we are in the middle of our summer long inferno coverage we're looking at the 1988 inferno crossover chad you were nice enough to come on the first episode of that um yes and and definitely got us off on the right foot so we appreciate that <laughs> uh yeah. when when this episode comes out we will have just crossed the halfway mark of covering inferno uh so we will still be in the midst of that uh we will let's see we'll have gotten up to like Uncanny X-Men 241, maybe, something like that. And so we'll have about four episodes after that uh, that are Inferno-based. Yeah, I, I say I say it's summer long. It's really taking us into October. Basically, all the way up right. to our 100th episode. <laughs> yeah, it's one of those crossovers that that 
touched just about every book that it could. So yeah, uh, a lot of things to talk about. And, and then you guys are to cover all of it. And then you guys are Tomb of Ideas on Twitter. Yep, Tomb of yes. Ideas on Twitter. Um, Tomb of Ideas on Facebook, Instagram. Both Trey and I have chosen. I think Blue Sky is our chosen. For now, we're on Blue Sky personally. I'm trying not to be on Twitter as much. Uh, I'm uh, at T Lawson on Blue Sky. I'm at uh, Mr. Hickson, Mr. Spelled Out. Yeah, right. So, uh, we're working on getting. Follow... Oh, go, I'm sorry. Go ahead. Uh, we're working on getting a, a show account, but because it's invite based, we're waiting until one of us gets another invite. <laughs> yeah, I'm waiting on the blue sky list, but I hate learning new websites. I hate it. I'm on threads, yeah. but I haven't gotten used to it yet. I will get we'll get there. Uh, thank right. you for coming on the show, you guys. It's It's been great to have you here, and I hope to hang out again soon. Uh, last thank thing, you for letting us tag along. Oh, yeah. Thank you. Lastly, I keep my own social media private because I've got kiddos, but the three of you are welcome to add me. But you can find Graymalk and PP Like Podcast on Twitter, Graymalk and underscore Lynn on Instagram. We have some really fun stuff. I am booked into November on the show, and there's just some incredible things uh, coming up. The next episode immediately after this is going to be The Trial of Herbert Edgar Wyndham, uh, the High Evolutionary. And we have an all-star cast of people coming to put this man on trial. He is weird and crazy. The next episode following that is X-Men The Hidden Years, numbers 19 and 20. And I get to make this announcement, which is really fun. I am reuniting Mike Carlin, Peter Sanderson, and Elliot Brown uh, on the show. And we get to talk about the early Marvel handbooks. And I'm so excited for the episode. I've had Elliot and Peter on before, but to pair them with Mike is just going to be a huge honor. Like the uh, the librarian part of me is just singing at this. So I'm, uh, I'm very excited. Uh, immediately after that on the Patreon, we also have an episode on uh, General Nguyen Koi Man coming out uh, with the incredible Trung Lee Kapechi Nguyen uh, joining me for that show. So everybody stay tuned. Thank you everyone for listening. Thank you, Daniel. Thank you, Trey. Thank you, James. We will see you back here next time on Grandma's Replays. Thank you for listening to Graymalk and Lane. We hope you are enjoying this podcast. Graymalk and Lane is produced and recorded in Salt Lake City, Utah, with music and editing done by my husband, Michael Bell, and promo art done by the incredible Seth Martell. Look for us on Patreon, where we are releasing weekly episodes about obscure characters and facts. Uh, it's a great way to participate with the podcast for only just a couple of dollars a month, and it helps support what we are doing here. Also, the best way you could help Graham Malkin Lane is by sharing and liking and subscribing, but also please leave us a review wherever you listen to your podcasts. We'll see you back here next time on Graham Malkin Lane. Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall credit card bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall credit card bill.